Welcome to Word of Truth Podcast. Our mission is to shine the light of biblical truth on the questions of life. Hosted by Stephen Brown and Stone Anderson. Enjoy the show. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is true. Yeah, yeah. Sanctify them through thy truth. Welcome, everybody, to the Word of Truth podcast. I am the co-host, Stone Anderson, and I'm here with... Stephen Brown. All right, so this is our first and hopefully a line of many podcasts where we will be doing one episode, which will be based on the Bible. We're going to call it the Weekly Word. Yeah. And we're going to do a second episode, which where we take maybe an event that's going on in the world or something... That the world, maybe, help me out. What I'm trying to say. Yeah, like uh, we're trying to look at some of the the topics, maybe that are a little bit more challenging. That you don't. We want to. Obviously, we're trying to bring everything back to a biblical worldview. You know, shining the truth of the Bible on it. The weekly word is more where we're going to kind of be going through the Bible together, Stone and I, and then. And maybe possibly, you know, that the the weekly word may include apologetics, um, just a simple Bible study, just different questions that may come in. The Word versus the World episode is going to be probably a little bit more out there, a little bit more fringe, dealing with some of the harder topics that you don't necessarily get by reading the Bible. Yet the Bible does have something to say about it. Well, Stone, I mean, this is our first episode. Uh, we're obviously going to make mistakes. We're going to be learning. I hope they'll bear with us. But they may want to know a little bit about you and I. They see you in the screen. You're a lot younger than I am. How did this whole thing come to be? What What are you all about? What got you into this? You know, tell me about yourself. All right. So I'm 20 years old. I'll be 21 in June. I think we probably met about two years ago, mm-hmm. right over. And it all went from there. We met at a at what is the classes called? Yeah, we host a homemaking class here for a lot of ladies out in the town where we live, and your mother happened to come and bring you with her. And then it went from there. Next thing you know, we was having church together. Mm-hmm. And now we're podcasting. So yeah, but I think the most one of the most unique things about you is that you are a sibling of how many? Well, there's nine of us there's all together. Nine of you. So you have how many brothers? There's five boys, and so I have four bro- four brothers and four sisters. And you're the oldest. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. That's got to be, you know, that's gonna, I think, provide a very interesting perspective too, because all of the things that we go through in life and the things that we experience shape our thoughts. And so, uh, which I've known you for two years, I've, I know what kind of young man you are, and I know that you know that kind of raising has really affected you. I, on the other hand, I have. Eight children. My wife and I together have eight children. They're all very close in age. We kind of had them stair-stepped. I had one set of twins in there. I will be 40, I just realized, before you turn 21. So I'll be double your age. (laughs) 
come February. Oh no, wait a minute. No, I'm turning no. 21 okay. in June. So, yeah, yeah, you'll beat me. So I was, I guess, as close as I'll be to double your age right now. Well, anyway, we're really excited about this. I told Stone my opening line is going to be I, I, I feel like Frodo and Sam heading out on an adventure to destroy the ring of lies of the world and the fires of Mount Doom. This is something that I personally, this podcast, I have wanted to do this since about 2013. Uh, it's a long story. I've put it off for so long. I've talked to many people about doing it. I'm excited. Okay, that's enough of the fluff. Let's get into it. This is the first episode of Weekly Word. While Stone is opening his Bible to Genesis chapter 1, I want to tell you a little bit about why we are starting there. There's obviously a huge interest among Christians and non-Christians alike in the book of Revelation, especially now in the days that we live in. But one of the mistakes that many new converts and new Christians make, and really this podcast is, is dedicated or directed to Christian people. If you're a non-Christian, that's great. I'm glad to have you here, and I hope that you're able to get something out of this. But most of the people that are going to listen to this and be drawn to it are Christian people, and they make a mistake. A lot of them make a mistake of they get saved, they become a believer, and they have heard a lot of really amazing things about the Bible, and they want to start with the book of Revelation. But there's not, there's not a single book in the world that you want to start with the last chapter or the last page or the last book in the Bible is certainly the same. There's some really fundamental, foundational things that's in the book of Genesis that you really have to kind of get your mind around and get settled on. It's like, to, when, you to, it's like yes. when you watch a movie. You don't skip to the end and watch the end scene. You have to figure out what led up to these events, why this is happening, why this is happening who this character is, all that. Yeah, that's a really good analogy because, sure, if you did skip and watch the last five minutes of the movie, yeah, you can figure out kind of a lot of what must have happened to get you there, but you're in the dark on so many things. You don't know how many times the plot twisted. And, yes, you really need to start at the beginning. Everything needs a solid foundation. Every home needs a solid foundation. Every man needs a solid foundation in every book. I mean, every worldview, everything. Well, the foundation of a biblical worldview is literally founded in Genesis. The word Genesis means beginning or origin. It's where it all started. And if we don't go there first, we will get so far off track. Now, that being said, this is not going to be like a super in-depth, oh, we're looking at the underlying Hebrew words. We're going to trace how this word was used through the centuries. No, that's not the case. We are going to get in-depth in some of our way of thinking, but let's just get into it. All right. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So, we could read on the whole rest of this chapter, and we've, we, we, we're not going to for sake of keeping your interest, but if you're familiar with the chapter at all, you know that that template repeats itself six more times in this chapter. That template being God did this, that, and the other, and within that he calls the, you know, he says in the evening and the morning were the second day, in the evening and the morning were the third day, in the evening and the morning were the fourth day, and so on and so forth. Stone, 
What do you think about what? I mean, if this is the if this is what it claims to be, it's the word of God. What is God trying to communicate to any who would read this? I would say he is. He's just trying to tell you how it all came to be. He's trying to tell you this is how he created the heaven and the earth. This is how everything began. And it's showing his power as God that he can just create the heavens and the earth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, definitely shows. I mean, that's that that could be the most important aspect of all of this if we could just get our mind around that the power of god in creating the whole universe from nothing whether it took him this you know the blink of an eye or whether it took him 6 days or we're going to look at some of the other theories the power of god is truly what's on display i mean the full power of god here to call things into being from nothing to call atoms into existence and to command them in what ways that they will behave from nothing and to speak laws of physics that govern the creation itself. That truly is one of the most important and probably most overlooked things about this chapter. So I'm glad you start off with that. Without reading the rest of the chapter, you know the rest of the chapter. What is your perspective on it? Do you think, because we know that part of the reason we're talking about this is because there's this is probably the most debated chapter in all of the Bible. That has, that's not historically the case, but that has become the case now. What is, your, what is your understanding of the first chapter of the Bible? I mean, what's your approach to it? Well, how do you feel about it? Well, I would say my approach to it is to just read it as, I guess, plainly as possible and not try to come at it with an ulterior motive. But I would just say the first chapter is just teaching us how he made the world in six days straight. And so, so, I mean, what I'm getting at is so what you would maybe call literal or, or a natural sort of self-evident, and there, there's no mystery here. Yeah, very much. Just six days. That's what you would get from that if you were to find this book on an island and read it. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, I, I think that's interesting. Here's something, some food for thought. I, obviously, I agree with you, but we want to talk a little bit about some people that disagree with us. But, you know, I, I was thinking today as we were sort of preparing for this podcast, is there any other book that you or anyone else that you know has ever opened the first chapter of any other book in the world and tried to reinterpret what they say? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, I don't think so. Like if we open the book Journey to the Center of the Earth or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Moby Dick, every book gives you a backstory, so to speak, of the characters. It gives you a setting. It gives you a time frame. It gives you all kinds of things to set the stage for everything that's going to follow in that book. Now, I have never heard anyone... Open any other book, open, say, Moby Dick, and begin to reinterpret the, the sort of Genesis narrative of Moby Dick. Now, why is that the case? Well, why would anybody begin to reinterpret any account of any book? Well, the answer is simple, because there's a difference between the Word of God and the Word of any other book, but 
just because the Word of God claims to be the absolute authoritative truth for mankind of, of where he came from and how to live and all those kinds of things, there shouldn't be any other reason to, to, to begin to reinterpret it. You know, all I'm saying is with, with any other book that we go to, we open it and we are excited, so to speak. We're like, I want to see what the author has to say to me. What kind of journey is this author going to carry me to, you know, or down or on or whatever? What, what road are we following here? And we just get on board right from the beginning. We, 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 engage in the book with our mind so to speak and there's no concept of we must reinterpret because it doesn't fit our worldview well here's what i'm really trying to highlight stone where does that switch flip in the minds of men that they must reinterpret the bible well here's why because in their worldview it's impossible to make the universe in six days that's why that's the only reason why so they think, well, I know that the Bible is true. It claims to be true. It's the word of God. But that's not possible that, that all this came to be in six days. And so there's this motive there. All I'm saying is that motive is not there with any other book in the world. There's no motive to reinterpret what the other books say. And so we can see that there's this motivation to begin to reinterpret. And that's the sneaky part. And that's what I want everybody, no matter what your approach to Genesis chapter one is, I want everybody to realize that it may be that something from outside of the Bible has sowed a seed in your mind that causes you to question the original narrative and think, well, I have to go to the underlying Hebrew. Let me give you one more example and then I'll turn it back to you for just a second. No one... I've never heard of anyone. Now, I've been listening to preaching. I am, personally am a preacher, and I have heard many thousands of sermons, literally thousands. And I have also listened to podcasts from around the world for about 10 years, like religiously. It's like my hobby. And I have never heard anyone open to the first book, the first chapter, the first verse of the New Testament and begin to reinterpret it and say, Oh, well, that's not really what it says. We have to go to the underlying Greek here. Why not? Why aren't they going to uh, the underlying? I mean, why, why aren't they feeling this need or this motive to reinterpret the New Testament first verse? Well, because it doesn't shake up their worldview any. It just says, this is the generation of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So there's, no, there's nothing in the text itself that triggers them to think, hey, that's not possible. That being said, it highlights for us that there is something in Genesis chapter 1 that triggers in the mind of modern man that's not possible. And because of that, he feels this need to begin to look into the underlying Hebrew words and, and begin to question the translator's ability to translate this, that, and the other. And he begins to wrestle with what truly is a very clear text. Now, that being said, we've talked about this before. You agree, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but if there is something in the Bible that makes us reinterpret our original understanding, then we must do it. Do you get what I'm saying? Yes. So like, if we read this first chapter and it said day one, day two, day three, four, whatever, okay. And then we get to Exodus chapter 20 and it said, for in 6,000 years, the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Then we would have to immediately go back 
to Genesis and say, oh, I misunderstood. The Bible instructs my understanding of the Bible. The Bible has revealed to me I had a misunderstanding there. And so because of the Bible, I would have to fix my worldview, so to speak. But unless we find that, there is no reason to do any, do you just, what it says, what you would read, a 13-year-old, 15-year-old can understand the huge majority of it. So, what is the most popular alternate view, do you think, of Genesis chapter 1 than a literal six-day? You know, I would probably say it's the gap theory or the day-age theory. Yeah. Within the Christian world, I think you're probably right. At least that was definitely true for the last 150 years. There's more, I guess, theistic evolution and stuff trying to come in now, and so gap theory is not as popular as it once was. And definitely the great work of Ken Ham and um, the other guy's name leaves me, which is just terrible. He was the founder of Institute for Creation Research. They both They've done tremendous work in sort of a revival of an original historical biblical position on the creation. That being said, what is the gap theory? Well, from from what I know, which is not much, it is it's a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2, I think. Mm-hmm. And what it, what they're saying basically is in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Pause. We don't know how much time went on. It could have been 100 million years, could have been a day. Then, and the earth was without form and void. Mm -hmm. Is there anything about that concept to you that immediately jumps out as, well, why did they even think that? I would say I could see them thinking that because maybe um, Stephen Hawking or somebody famous scientist says, well, evolution's true. Here's the proof which they cannot prove it, but they say they can, and they'll give you false evidence. Say, how do you, how, what do you have to say about that? How can your Bible be right? And it's wrong. Science proves it wrong. What do you have to say about that? And so they say, oh, well, we could, well, we could make, the world, or make the world older than it is by putting a gap there. Yeah, to me... The, one of the interesting things about the gap theory is that there is not a place to put the gap in the Bible. There's literally not a place to put one because we have a, I mean, and I think it's by the divine inspiration of God that we have our history, the history of mankind from literally the fir- the first sort of spoken word of creation of God all the way down to the death of John the Apostle in our in the year of our Lord, whatever that year was. I don't know, 90 A.D., 95 A.D., I don't, I don't know. But we have a sort of chronology of events that you can't, you, at best you might could put a gap of like 50 years where if you wanted to make this argument that there was some time loss during the Babylonian captivity or during Exodus or something like that, maybe even a couple hundred years. But my point is there is not a, I mean, this is a big point if you'll really wrap your mind around it. The Bible is so precise about every single thing that it teaches, starting from verse 1 
to chapter 22, from verse 1 of Genesis 1, to chapter 22, verse 20 or whatever of book of Revelation, of the book of Revelation, that there's nowhere in the whole Bible that you can put a gap. So if you're going to find thousands of extra years or millions or billions, you got to put it right there in the beginning because there is no other place to put it. Like if there's not a gap between verse 1 and verse 2, then the earth is 6,000 years old, roughly speaking. I'll say possibly 6,500. Like I said, I mean, perhaps there's some missing years there. Not every single thing is just hammered down fine-tuned. Like we know how we, we, we're given the genealogies and chronologies in several different places. Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 10, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. We're, and we're given how long they were in Egypt and how long they were in Babylon and all of this kind of stuff. And so the, the fact remains that if, if there is not a gap of, unknown amount of an unknown amount of time between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis then the earth is 6,000 years old because there is not a Bible, Bible scholar alive that will claim that there's anything more than a couple of hundred years possible. And most don't even think that there's anything missing. But there's not a Bible scholar alive that would think that there's more than a couple hundred years missing from the time you get to Genesis verse 2 all the way through to the book of Revelation. Now to me, that is a really powerful point the reason that Thomas Chalmers and different ones, Thomas Chalmers was a, 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 a real key figure, a proponent of the gap theory. There's a reason that they had to go all the way back to the first verse of the Bible and put it there because there is nowhere to put it. And so if it doesn't belong there, it just doesn't belong at all. And we have to deal with, as Christians, the fact that, like I said, if there's not a gap, we have to deal with a very young earth. Now, that brings up the other possibility what do you know anything about the day age theory and what that is from what i've heard the day age theory is the theory that we really don't know how long the days were the you know the seven days of create or six days of creation we don't know how long they were they could have been thousands of years for one day and i also see that kind of as another way to kind of get around the evolutionist view. Well, yes, such a wonderful point you make again, because that's the interesting thing, Stone. If we look at every alternative theory, every alternate interpretation, they all have one thing in common. What do you think that one thing is? They're they're trying to... they are, they're, yes, they're trying to reconcile two worldviews, but really we could boil it down every other possible interpretation that people inflict on the text is time. They're all trying to find more time. That tells you that whether they mean to or not, I think many are very well-intentioned and good-hearted, whether they mean to or not, there is a an unbiblical motive there. I don't, I don't mean anti-biblical. I'm not saying that these people are wicked. I'm not saying, well, I think actually some are, but for your, for your most, most of your everyday common man kind of thing, the, the dad who's teaching his kids, he has no wicked intention. He doesn't even realize that he, he's wrestling with his 13 years of public schooling and his four years of college and all the stuff that he's seen on TV and all the fairy tale books that he's read. He's wrestling with it and he doesn't even realize it. The, everyone, everyone's first reaction of Genesis is where's the time? 
Where's the t- but here's the thing, Stone. If we throw evolution out, we don't need any time. If God said, let there be, and there was, which is how the Bible records it. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the waters which are under the firmament be gathered together into one place. And it was so. There, you don't even, when God spoke it, it was instantaneously obeyed by the, the, by the creation itself. And if evolution didn't happen, then we don't need any time there. And when you read here, so that would be the second question. Do you see any evolving animals in Genesis chapter 1? Or do you see them created fully functioning, fully capable, fully developed, you know? Well, it says, like, and God created great worlds, great whales, and every living creature that moveth. I don't, I don't really get that they're evolving one to another. He just made each one after their kind. Yes, it says he made the birds to fly in the open firmament of the heaven, and he made the fish, and he made the beasts of the field, and he did all of this. And it also says that he did, he made each kind after their own kind. And then with the plants, it says that he made the herbs and he made the trees and he made all the things that are good for food and trees that are pleasant to the sight and all of these kinds of things. God made them as they were. Now, so here's my question to you, Stone. I did a creation presentation at a church several years back. And well, I'll tell you what the guy said in just a minute if I don't forget. But how, if you could time travel and you went back to talk to Adam on the ten, when he was 10 days old, how old would the world have looked to you? I would say it would have looked, I, I, I don't know, honestly, I guess you wouldn't be able to tell how old it looked. It would look like it does now. Precisely. I mean, what you just said, I'm telling you, 990 out of 1,000 people won't get that answer right. They'll say, it looked really old, but it doesn't look really old. It looks exactly like it looks now. Well, they say, well, now it looks really old, but it doesn't. This is an overlaying concept that is, is imposed itself upon your brain. The earth does not look old. Let me, let me give you an example. If everything, if, if the universe itself, if God holds it together and sustains it as he currently does and holds the sun and the moon and the earth together and this thing goes on for another hundred trillion years, the earth is still going to look this way because this is how God made it. It does have cycles. It does have rain. It does have erosion. It also has mountain building processes. And here's the thing. like I, Okay, so I did this presentation at a church a few years back. After it was over, someone asked one of the older men there, and I say older, this man was like 85 years old. I have a tremendous amount of respect for this man. I still do. I love him. They asked him, do you believe the earth is 6,000 years old? He said, no, I don't believe the earth is 6,000 years old. They said, why not? His answer should have been, well, because I don't think the Bible says that. But no, his answer was, because he said, just look at it. Just look at it. Well, so I want to go ask the man, which part are we going to look at? The water? The earth is 70% water. It's covered in 70% water. It don't look a day older tomorrow than it does today, right? Okay, well, what about the desert? It looks the same no matter when you go. It wouldn't matter if we look at it now, take a picture of it now, and look at it 100 billion years from now. It's still going to look just like a desert. 
Well, what about everywhere that's covered in biological life, jungles, rainforests? You know, here we are in the mountain lakes region of North Alabama. You know, there's not a thing you're laying your eye on that's older than 150, 200 years. All the living things, I'm saying, trees, all of the stuff that we actually see. What do we see? We see dirt, which doesn't age. We see rocks, which doesn't age. We see trees, which do age and they die. But every tree that we see is younger than 200 years old for the most part. We see water that shows no signs of age. So this whole concept of age is literally, or, you know, this sort of looking at the earth and seeing this old earth, it's an imagination thing. It's an imaginary thing. It's like, you've seen the picture of where they take the monkey and make it into a man? Oh, uh, yes. Where they have the stages where it's mm -hmm. like the monkey. Yeah, that's yeah. even in movies and cartoons and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. And that picture has imposed in people's minds a real relationship between them and the chimpanzee. So much so that now they go to the zoo and they look at that chimpanzee and they look at his hands and they look at how he behaves and they think about that picture and all the stuff they've heard and they think, you know, I can see there's a little, like he's a little bit human, ain't he? When, you know, five seconds ago that chimpanzee was throwing, I don't even want to say, they're so disgusting in their habits and there's, if you wanted to make that same sort of image connection, you could do it between dogs and people. You could really say there's more in common with dog behavior and dog personalities and even in a lot of ways dog physical features. It's just this, this idea of this evolutionary time frame, a time frame of this ancient earth that has been imposed on us through all, <clears throat> all types of media. I could go on about this forever. I want to say one more thing, and then I'll ask you a question about um, is there any possible other interpretation? I've had several people say this to me through the years when I talk to them about their position on Genesis. They say it's, it's not a fundamental issue. It doesn't matter that much. It's not worth arguing over. It's, you know, you can have your understanding of Genesis chapter 1 and I can have mine kind of thing. And then some will go so far as to say your young earth creationism is causing other people to not come to Jesus because they say what you're saying is so bizarre and so out there and so otherworldly that this idea that this earth is young and that God just spoke it into existence fully formed fully mature not that long ago and the history of mankind is fully recorded in the word of God what you're saying is so out there and so bizarre that you are actually being a stumbling block to those that would come to faith in Christ because they think well I have to believe in a young earth Therefore, you ought to sort of water down your view of creation. You ought not, which I, let me make it clear. I'm, I have never said, and I don't believe, that you have to believe in a young earth to be saved. I don't believe that at all. That's not, there's no age of the earth in the gospel. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. He paid our sin debt on the cross, and by faith in his shed blood to pay for my sins, I can be saved. I'm saved by the grace of God through faith in him, not my, not my own works, not my own philosophy, not my own wisdom. However, the concept that because what the Bible says or my understanding of this natural interpretation of the Bible is so out there that I should water it down to keep from running people off, well, stone. Why don't we do that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the virgin birth and the Red Sea crossing and the 40 years of the Exodus and the axe head that floats and Elijah being carried up in a whirlwind and never died? You know, why don't we do that with everything then? Why don't we say, well... 
If you don't want to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin because to you that's scientifically impossible, it's okay. You don't have to. Mary and Joseph may have slept together. If you don't want to believe Jesus physically rose from the dead, you don't have to. Because nobody else has ever came back from the dead. You see what I'm saying? This idea, that's real, that really gets me. Okay, well, I'll quit there. Last thing, and then we'll, we'll close, and we'll probably come back to Genesis 1 again next week. I don't know. Some people think that this is just sort of a, a, par- a parable, like, a, like just a, a way to, you know, for God to teach people sort of what they call archetypical lessons. One of the people that's very popular that sort of spreads that thing is Jordan Peterson. Do you see, is this a parable or is this the teaching of God here? Is this meant to tell you where you come from or not? Well, if you take this as a parable, you could take the whole Bible as a parable and then they could say, or you could say, well, Jesus died on the cross and resurrecting. Well, that was just a parable of something more scientific or, you know. Yeah, I, I love this, just the straightforward logic of a 20-year-old mind. If you take chapter 1 as a parable, there is, at what point do you quit? It's chapter 2 is also a parable. Chapter 3, parable. Chapter 4, parable. You and know. then the whole Bible is a storybook. And- exactly. The whole Bible. So, you know, this has maybe been a little bit longer than what we intended to go, and I rambled way more than I meant to. But we have to start out with that foundation. And you know, that's really what's most important even. Before we open the Word of God, we need to come to it knowing what it is, that it is the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. It's not the philosophy of man. It's not the thoughts and intents and desires of man. It is exactly what it claims to be, and that is it's the Word of God. And we should come to it humbly knowing that we have a mortal mind and we don't, we can't even grasp all of the concept of God. Sometimes you've got to just read it, and God said it, so trust it. That is exactly the case. If you, you know, we, we, we're so tempted as prideful men and women, but when I use men, I mean men in the biblical sense, mankind, all of mankind. We, we want to make every thought and word of God subject to our wisdom and our logic, which we learn you don't get, you only get three chapters into the Bible and you realize that if the Bible is true, then your mind is broken. You're a fallen creature. Your logic is fallen. Your ability to reason is fallen. You, you know, you love darkness rather than light and you don't even know it. You take sweet for bitter and you don't know it. You think holiness is an atrocity and sin is beautiful and you don't even know it. And you find that out right on page three. So, yes, we have to come humbly and say, whatever this says is right. And whatever doesn't comport with my pre-existing worldview, well, I just have to throw those things out. And really, it's a blessing to do that. So, let's bring it to a close. Is there anything you would like to add or say? I think we covered a bunch. I think we covered enough that we can go with the foundation now from here forward of, I mean, for you gap theory scholars out there, I'm not saying that we covered the gap theory fully, but we did cover our attitude and our approach to the word of God. And if we come back to the gap theory, so be it. I don't really want to just get bogged down with that because there's so many other beautiful things in the book of Genesis that we could talk about that's beneficial to people. 
for the next episode, keep that in mind. We want to see what God says, not what somebody said 250 years ago, not even what I'm saying. I'm just trying to get it out of the Word of God. You can open the Bible and sit with us. I would encourage you to do that. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stone, thank you for being my co-host. I've had fun. Yeah, me too. Let's bring this one to a close. See you guys again next week.